Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Good afternoon. Welcome to A Seat at the Sitting. This special webinar series is presented by the Federal Society's practice groups and is designed to preview the November Supreme Court docket in 90 minutes or less. Today, we are pleased to have with us a panel of great experts, and we are excited for them to inform us of what is up next for SCOTUS. My name is Nate Kazmarek. I am Vice President and Director of the practice groups. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of our guests. Today, we are certainly thrilled to have Amy Howe lead today's conversation. Amy, how are you? Doing well, thank you. <laughs> uh, very good. Uh, Amy is well known to our audience as a co-founder and now independent reporter for SCOTUS Blog. She blogs at her own website, uh, How on the Court. Uh, prior to September 2016, Amy served as editor and reporter for SCOTUS Blog. Before full-time blogging, she served as counsel in over two dozen uh, merits cases at the Supreme Court and argued two cases there. Uh, she has co-taught classes on Supreme Court litigation at Stanford and Harvard Law Schools. Amy is a graduate of the University of North Carolina and holds a master's degree in Arab Studies and a law degree from Georgetown University. Full bios for Amy and our entire panel are available on our website and the promo emails we sent out for today's program. In a moment, I'll turn it over to Amy. Uh, once our panel has thoroughly covered the upcoming cases, we'll go to audience Q&A. So please prepare the difficult questions uh, that you'd like to ask them. Audience, qu audience questions can be submitted via Zoom, uh, the Zoom Q&A function, and we'll do our best to address as many of them as uh, time will allow. With that, uh, thank you everyone uh, for being with us this afternoon. Amy, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Nate, and thanks to the Federalist Society for inviting me to moderate this panel. Uh, I think you can say this about pretty much every argument calendar this term, which is full of blockbusters, but this is a really interesting argument session, and we're very lucky to have an all-star panel here to discuss it. I'm going to start by briefly introducing our panel and the cases that they will focus on, and then we'll dive in. Uh, one by one. So we have Allison Soman, who's going to cover what's known as colloquially as the affirmative action cases, students for fair admission versus Harvard College, and students for fair admission versus my alma mater, the University of North Carolina. Elise Dorsey is going to cover Axon versus Federal Trade Commission. Peggy Little will cover Securities and Exchange Commission versus Cochrane. And Jennifer Weddle will cover the Indian Child Welfare Act cases. We are, as Nate said, looking forward to your questions. Please feel free to submit them at any time in the Q&A function on Zoom. And so let's go ahead and get started because we have a lot to talk about. I'm gonna go through the cases in the order in which the court will hear them. So we're gonna start with Harvard, with Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard College and Students for Fair Admission versus the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. They are, as many of you I'm sure know, uh, challenges to the consideration of race by Harvard and UNC in their admissions process. The challengers have also asked the justices to overrule Grutter versus Bollinger, the Supreme Court's 2003 decision 
holding that the University of Michigan Law School could consider race as one factor in its admissions process as part of its desire to have a diverse student body. So Allison Soman is gonna cover the case for us. She is a lawyer for the Pacific Legal Foundation. Before that, she also worked as a special assistant and counsel to Gail Harriet, a member of the bipartisan US Commission on Civil Rights. And she followed an amicus brief supporting the challengers in this case. So Allison, please take it away. Thank you so much for that kind introduction, Amy, and thank you to the Federalist Society for inviting me. As Amy nicely set up, I'm here today to address two cases that challenge the legality of race preferential admissions, uh, as Amy again said, one against Harvard University and one against the University of North Carolina. The question at the heart of both cases is simple. Should students applying to a college or university be admitted or rejected solely based on their academic or other qualifications for attendance? Or should the university be permitted to use their race as a plus or minus factor in their decision making? In almost every other area of government decision making, the answer is simple. No, the government isn't allowed to use race. It's not really surprising why we have that rule. There has been a long and insidious use history of the misuse of race in government-based decision-making, and it's not surprising, therefore, that the Constitution has been generally interpreted to prohibit the use of race by decision-makers. Similarly, the Civil Rights Act prohibits recipients of federal funding who aren't themselves part of the government but receive federal money to not use race in their decision-making process. There are some exceptions, but they've historically been very limited. They must be compelling to use the doctrinal term, and they've been carefully circumscribed to particularly significant areas, such as, for example, national security. These race preferential admissions cases have therefore never really fit with the rest of the Supreme Court's equal protection jurisprudence. So it's not surprising that they're headed back up to the high court again. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about how we got here. I'm going to pick apart the court's leading opinion in re regarding race preferential admissions, Grutter versus Bollinger. I'll talk a little bit about what I think the court might do and why these cases are important, even for other areas of government decision making. Grutter versus Bollinger went up to the Supreme Court in 2003. It was joined with a twin case, Gratz versus Bollinger. Gratz involved the University of Michigan undergrad where a point system was used. Students who came from certain favored racial groups received a set amount of points when edging their applications forward. I wanna be clear, this was not a small thumb on the scale. This was not a small edge. It's what one of my former Civil Rights Commission colleagues referred to as an anvil on the scale. The bonus given for race in the University of Michigan undergrad was the equivalent of adding about a full point, moving from a 3.0 to a 4.0, added to one's high school GPA. The bonuses given for race in the Grutter case were similarly large, but they weren't officially given in the same amount to each applicant. Supposedly, admissions officers were using race flexibly, but in practice, admissions officers almost always use their discretion in the same way to give the same size preference to applicants from a particular racial group. Justice Rehnquist and his dissent in that case really picks apart the numbers and shows what's going on. 
Nonetheless, despite what I and other observers has perceived the similarity between these two cases, the court handled them differently. It struck down the use of race um, at stake in the Graz case involving Michigan undergrad, but it upheld it in the Grutter case in Michigan's law school. Grutter is kind of an odd opinion, even to supporters, both in the general public and in academia who like its results. When I talk to people who don't know a lot about the court's history of race-based decision-making, who nonetheless defend race in admissions decision-making, they tend to defend it as being about making up for past historic wrongs against minority groups. They say this is giving a hand up to make up for past discrimination. And while I don't agree that this is the best tool or a constitutionally permitted tool, that argument does have a certain moral weight and a certain appeal. Certainly race-based decision-making in government history has been bad. And I certainly understand the urge to want to use something, uh, whether it's race preferences as a remedial action. That's not, however, what the Supreme Court did in Grutter. Justice O'Connor upheld race preferences in admissions when narrowly tailored to serve a compelling interest in student body diversity. This diversity rationale isn't about healing historic wrongs, but rather about ensuring what she perceived as pedagogic excellence in classrooms. She believed that everybody learned more when racial and ethnic minority students are present in classrooms at selective schools. One big problem, though, is that if you look at how most selective universities actually use race, they don't use it away in a way that makes sense if their real goal is diversity. They tend to use it in a way that makes more sense if their real goal is compensatory justice for historic wrongs, or even just ensuring proportional representation, ensuring a certain, a certain balance among students from racial groups. For example, the, one sees very large racial preferences being given an admission in areas like math and science when one wouldn't really expect racial diversity to have much, if any, impact on classroom discussion, about as much or more as one sees in areas where you'd expect diversity to matter more, like government, political science, or sociology. The groups that get and don't get race as a plus also don't really make sense if your goal is really diversity of experience or pedagogical diversity in the classroom. For example, Asian American students tend to be treated as one sole group for purposes of preference and admissions, even though that group is extraordinarily internally diverse. Uh, Chinese American students and Pakistani American students come from groups that have very different histories very different cultural traditions. Uh, the same thing is true if one looks at Hispanic and Latino Americans, students who again come from groups that have very different histories and would tend to have diverse perspectives within the group. Uh, Professor David Bernstein of GMU recently wrote an excellent book, Classified, that really picks apart that, that part of the diversity rationale, how these classifications don't make that much sense if one's real goal is diversity. Notwithstanding these apparent contradictions or problems with Bruder, there's been, there's been relatively little litigation trying to challenge most universities' use of race under the Grutter decision. 
One can speculate about why that is, but I think that part of the problem is just that it takes an extraordinary amount of time and resources to bring one of these cases. And for an individual applicant, even if that person suspects wrongdoing, it's almost never worth it. Uh, I believe the Harvard and UNC complaints were both, were both first brought in about 2014. So anyone who was harmed in that admission cycle has long since graduated and gone on with life. There was one attempt in the Fisher versus Texas case that challenged University of Texas use of racial preferences that made it up to the court twice in the last decade. However, te the Texas case essentially just leaves the Bruder framework untouched. Given that this Grutter framework doesn't seem to make much sense on its own terms and fits poorly with the Supreme Court's earlier decisions on race, it's not terribly surprising that Students for Admissions has brought this round of cases and has asked quite straightforwardly a petition for review for the court to straightforwardly overrule Grutter. Petitions, predictions are hard, especially about the future, but we do have a court that I think is more sympathetic to overruling race preferences, overruling Grutter than any court in a generation. This is a Federalist Society audience, so I expect that some people will be skeptical of Chief Justice Roberts's true bona fides. Nonetheless, he's been pretty steadfast in his past opinions about not liking race-based decision-making by government, about believing that it often in many such instances violates the Constitution. There's less clear evidence about Justices Gorsuch, Barrett, and Kavanaugh, but given their overall orientation philosophy of judging, if you are a critic of rice preferences and admissions, I think there's some reason to, to be optimistic. Why is this case important? In some ways, I feel like it's relatively easy to convince people of why it is. There's been plenty in the media, uh, and many people in this room may themselves have been through an admissions cycle in which they've seen their friends, loved ones, treated differently for no reason than the basis of race. There's plenty of news stories in the media about how cases of applications seem to be mishandled based on race. Nonetheless, I want to be clear that Grutter just doesn't have implications merely for the world of higher education. Grutter is cited in cases involving the expansion of diversity-based justifications for using race in selective magnet schools in the K-12 arena. At the Pacific Legal Foundation, we've handled cases challenging the use of race in COVID relief programs, in the allocation of COVID-19 therapeutic treatments. Uh, people were used, uh, states were talking about using race and in some cases actually using race in the allocation of COVID COVID-19 vaccines. Hospitals are now saying that they're using race based on diverse considerations of diversity, equity, and inclusion in determining who gets cardiac care. It may not matter greatly who gets into a particular university and who gets sorted to a slightly less selective one, but I would submit humbly that there are a few things that matter more than one, whether one gets cardiac care when one needs it. So if the court doesn't cut back on race-based preferences in admissions in this case, one can expect to see the expansion of Grutter into many different areas of government-based decision-making, and one should find that indeed troubling. Thank you for your time. I look forward to answering your questions about these cases. Thank you so much, Allison. Before I, I have questions, 
do any of the panelists have any question, additional questions or comments on Allison's presentation? Okay, um, one question I had, you know, just sort of first from a legal perspective, you, you talked about, and, and the, the goal of the case is to overrule Gruder. Um, what are some of the other ways that the court that this is this case could play out in terms of some of the other results that the, the court could reach. So the court could try to cut back on the widespread use of race based preferences without straightforwardly overruling Grutter. They could say that Harvard used that Harvard is in violation of Grutter, even if it stands untouched. One thing that's interesting that I would be happy to draw out more in response to future questions, both of these cases involve discrimination based on race against Asian American students. Uh, occasionally, if one wanders onto popular media, you will hear criticism of race preferences be accused of being about preserving white privilege, which is somewhat ironic given that at many selective universities, it appears that the group that's discriminated against the most is actually Asian Americans. So the court could say that Harvard and UNC are unfairly discriminating against Asian Americans, even under Grutter, but leave the framework untouched. I think that that would be important since there is often unfair discrimination against Asian Americans uh, in, uh, by these selective schools. It does concern me, though, that if the court tries to cut back on Grutter without overruling it, that schools are just going to easily find ways to circumvent that. And so the status quo of widespread discrimination would just stick in place and nothing will really change. The constitution and civil rights laws will largely sit unvindicated. One thing that Justice O'Connor, in her opinion, for the majority in Grutter said was that, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, the, the country has come a long ways since our decision in uh, Baki versus Board of Regents. And we hope that in another 25 years, the interests that we endorse today will no longer be necessary. Do you think that that, that line, that that reasoning from Gruder is going to carry any weight on either side of the calculus? So I do think that that line is important in articulating a limit on Gruder's reasoning. This precedent wasn't expected to live forever. It was something that was supposed to wither away as race relations improved. There was apparently an op-ed in the New York Times this morning suggesting that some interpret it differently as giving an extra five years for universities to get their act together before race preferences can reasonably be challenged. Be that as it may, I think that if Justice O'Connor saw this as a temporary measure that would help get us closer to equality, I don't think it's worked that way. As I've, as I've said earlier, um, it appears that most universities aren't easing up on their use of race since 2003. Many are using it just as aggressively or more aggressively, and race-based decision-making seems to be expanding into new areas rather than contracting. That strongly suggests that the way to end, to end using race is not to temporarily use race for media purposes, but to just as Justice Carlos Bayo first said in his Ninth Circuit opinion, to stop making decisions on the basis of race. All right, my last question for you for now, um, you talked about what happened if the court doesn't overrule Grutter. What happens if the court does overrule Grutter? 
So I think that that would be a step forward for those who oppose the use of race in admissions. I am not so optimistic as to think that every university will just stop trying to find way, ways to covertly use race. In California, for example, Prop 209, pretty clearly by the terms of its text, bans the use of race in university admissions decision-making by public schools. Nonetheless, California's universities have tried to cheat in lots of different ways. They've tried using preferences based on zip code, where zip code is pretty clearly a pretext for race. They've tried to use socioeconomic status. Uh, that's, worked that, that's worked less well in achieving their racial goal in that there's a lack of fit between that proxy for race and race itself. I expect many universities and colleges will try to do things like this. I'm not opposed to using to universities pursuing geographic diversity or class diversity as ends in and of themselves, as long as they're not using those goals as proxies for race. I expect that there will be litigation uh, challenging use of those kinds of measures if it appears that some colleges and universities are using those alternatives as proxies for race rather than as admissions criteria in and of themselves. Terrific, thank you. We are gonna move on now to our next case, SEC versus Cochrane. This is a case brought by an accountant who was the subject of administrative proceedings, alleging that she had failed to comply with federal accounting standards. So Peggy Little is going to talk more about it, but briefly, the question before the court now is whether federal district courts have the power to consider claims challenging the constitutionality of the SEC's administrative law proceedings. Peggy Little, who's going to focus on this case for us, is the senior counsel at the New Civil Liberties Alliance. She has over three decades of experience as a trial and appellate litigator on a wide range of topics with clients ranging from individuals to Fortune 500 companies, Fortune 50 companies. Um, Peggy, please take it away. Thank you, Amy. Um, thank you for having me here. <clears throat> you, you correctly stated the question presented in Cochrane, but, uh, in, and this is also true of Axon, I think there's a another aspect of the case that doesn't get much attention. And it's, it's whether uh, people are able to challenge the constitutionality of the administrative law judges before the proceeding takes place or after. And that's a critical distinction to understand because the way the SEC and most administrative agencies involved in these litigations would like to have it happen is that you have to go through the proceeding. Um, you, you might have to have the administrative law judge issue an initial ruling on his or her own competence to sit and preside over your case. And then you have to wait till there's a decision and then bring the issue up on appeal to the circuit court that would apply in your uh, case or in the DC circuit courts. That's um, actually insane <laughs> because if you have an unconstitutional adjudicator, you need to be able to raise that before the proceeding takes place. This for, and in order to understand Cochrane and I think Axon too, you have to understand uh, two, two other cases. Uh, there was a blockbuster case in 2018, Lucia versus the United States. And in that case, or rather SEC. And in that case, 
Ray Lucia challenged the um, appointment of his administrative law ju judge. And he had to fight it all the way through the agency, through the commission review, uh, where he got two dissents by the way in his favor. He went to the DC circuit, the DC circuit split, uh, and only at the Supreme Court did they reach the question that his, he, his ALJ had not been constitutionally appointed. In addition, the Solicitor General in that case made the argument that the ALJs had too many removal protections. They were too insulated from removal. The court declined to take that issue. But as Justice Breyer pointed out in the Lucia decision, that's embedded in the appointments case. And so what we're seeing is the follow on to Lucia. The ALJs have been determined by the Supreme Court to be officers of the United States that have to be properly appointed. And the question that is in Cochran and Axon is whether those judges are too insulated from removal by the president, and then whether you can raise that issue in federal district court before the constitutional proceedings take place. The second case that needs some explication before we can get into the uh, merits of Michelle's case is called uh, Free Enterprise Fund. And in that case, the Supreme Court decided unanimously that there was jurisdiction to hear a challenge to the PCAOB on their removal protections. So Free Enterprise Fund, for purposes of this litigation, provides not only the rule of decision on jurisdiction, and it provides that rule of decision unanimously, but also provides the rule of decision on the question of uh, undue uh, removal protections. Free Enterprise Fund held that only one, level, one um, layer of removal protections was permissible. And the SEC uh, ALJs have at least three, as I count them, uh, layers of removal protection. So understanding that those precedents are out there is key to understanding this litigation. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Michelle Cochran. She uh, is a feisty Texas accountant who was in, a, in, a, in the job from hell. She had a terrible boss who apparently was also dishonest. So in 2013, she quit her job. Um, he wouldn't let her finish her audits. It was, it was just a, a terrible situation. And, and that situation was acknowledged in the SEC ALJ's opinion. So three years after she walks away uh, from this job as any self-respecting person would do, she gets slapped with an SEC uh, case, mostly going after her boss, but he settles and, and they chase Michelle for ancillary charges. Uh, these are what are known as paperwork uh, violations and whether her audits had been completed. Uh, she went before an administrative law judge that was the same one that was in Ray Lucia's case, and he slapped her with a $22,500 fine, but also suspended her license to practice for five years, which is devastating to someone uh, who has worked hard to get a CPA and needs to uh, support their children and not be uh, de-licensed for those periods of time. I would also uh, uh, note that those penalties, once they're assessed, they are a lifetime smear on your reputation. And it's very difficult, not only to get a job as a CPA, but to get any job at all. But before uh, Michelle's decision could become final, she was um, 
uh, informed that the uh, Lucia decision had come down and over a hundred cases at the SEC got set aside because of the fact that their adjudicators had been unconstitutional. That sounded like good news until you realize that she now has to go through the proceeding all over again before a different ALJ. And that different ALJ still has unconstitutional layers of removal protections. So Michelle came to the new Civil Liberties Alliance where I worked uh, at the time in, in um, 19, uh, let's see, it was uh, 2019. And um, we brought suit in federal court on her behalf to stop her from having to go through a second proceeding before judges who were still unconstitutionally uh, insulated from re removal. The district judge following what was at that point five circuits courts of appeals felt he could not uh, recognize her right to raise the removal um, uh, violations in, in the court. But he, he said the following when he dismissed her case. The court is deeply concerned with the fact that the plaintiff already has been subjected to extensive proceedings before an ALJ who is not constitutionally appointed. She should not have been put to the stress of the first proceedings. And if she is correct in her contentions, she again will be put to further proceedings, undoubtedly at considerable expense and stress before another unconstitutionally appointed administrative law judge. And it's the illogic of forcing people to wait till the proceeding is over uh, before they can challenge the constitutionality of their adjudicator that the judge was putting his finger on. So we brought suit in, in uh, federal court. We uh, lost and the judge dismissed the case because of the five circuits against us. We were able to get a stay at the fifth circuit, which was a good sign. We lost two to one with a good dissent um, in the um, uh, Fifth Circuit. And then um, the Fifth Circuit sitting on bonk ruled 9-7 in Michelle's favor. So the case um, is not only whether you can raise the, the, um, the defect in your administrative law judge's qualifications to rule in your case, but when. So this is, was a very exciting development. The uh, Fifth Circuit opinion is a fascinating read, um, not, not just the majority, but also the concurring opinion. And um, uh, we are hoping that the fact that the court is accepted, um, cert on this, that we will be able to turn this irrational ship around. I think it was Justice Scalia who once said, you know, having case law and precedent for you is great. Having doctrine for you is great. But if you got logic going for you, you've really got a case. And this case has it because it makes no sense whatsoever to put people through years of protracted proceedings that will, are destined to be set aside because of their unconstitutionality. So we're hoping that the Supreme Court um, will see the logic of affirming the uh, Fifth Circuit's decision in Michelle's case. Now, we only have one justice who has actually spoken to this question, and that's Justice Kavanaugh in 2015 in an opinion called Jarcusy versus the Securities and Exchange Commission, one of the earlier challenges in one of the five circuits that had gone against us. Now, that decision was authored by Judge Srinivasan, but it was joined in by Justice Kavanaugh. 
then Judge Kavanaugh. Um, and it, it's an interesting decision uh, because at, at that same time, and this is about 2015, a lot of district courts were actually getting this question right, in my view. We had a, a district judge in the Northern District of Georgia who recognized that these uh, constitutional claims had to be decided in federal court before the proceedings took place. Judge Berman in the Southern District of New York and a couple of other judges there also uh, had ruled that you should be able to bring these claims before the proceedings take place. Um, but then five circuits um, overturned those rulings or uh, affirmed district courts that felt they could not take uh, uh, jurisdiction. What makes this really interesting right now is that we know what Justice Kavanaugh ruled in Jarkissi in 2015, but we've got powerful new information about what happens afterwards because Jarkissi, having gone through seven years of administrative proceedings, has had his case, his appeal to the Fifth Circuit after his proceedings decided. And the Fifth Circuit decided that the administrative proceedings denied him his Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial. It held that his uh, administrative law judges had been unconstitutionally insulated from removal. And that they also held that there was a non-delegation uh, question in the case that made his proceedings need to be set aside. So we have um, what, what is um, a preliminary ruling when Justice Kavanaugh was on the DC circuit that is informed now by a subsequent circuit court uh, consideration of all the constitutional violations that are present in these administrative law proceedings. And we, were, we are hoping that the Jarkissi decision will inform the court in terms of how insane this is for people to go through years of proceedings that ultimately get set aside. One of the um, things that I found when I was arguing this before the uh, en banc Court of Appeals was I recited to them that Michelle had been in the administrative maw for at least five, maybe six years. Ray Lucia was stuck in that uh, uh, administrative jungle for eight years. Uh, uh, Jarkissi, seven years. Uh, a guy named David Bandemir in the 10th Circuit had been in that administrative proceeding for 10 years. I honestly don't think the judges had any understanding or knowledge that people get stuck in these proceedings that last so long. The average time from filing to decision in a federal district court hovers around two, two and a half years. And I know that includes settled cases, but still there's a huge disparity between the time it takes to get an administrative proceeding decided. So that is one of the many compelling factual um, uh, uh, things that we had developed uh, in some of our amicus briefs in Cochrane, uh, filed uh, by Ray Lucia and George Jarkissi, amongst others, uh, in terms of how long these proceedings take place. One of the contributing factors to the length of those proceedings is um, uh, the SEC's deadlines get strictly enforced against the respondents, and they keep giving themselves extensions, even when the rules require them to rule within a certain number of days, they give themselves extensions that go on for years. 
Now, why is all of this important? It's important because in, uh, in the agencies, they enact thousands of rules every year. Sometimes those uh, rules, as in Ray Lucia's case, are uh, made up out of whole cloth by the administrative law judge. And that is, by the way, what two um, SEC commissioners said in Ray Lucia's appeal. So you have these thousands of rules that sometimes are made up by the administrative law judges. Then the prosecutor is by the agency and the judge is then employed by the very agency who is prosecuting him. That is a concentration of power that our constitution does not permit. And so this is important so that people can get into a real court before a real judge with the constitutional uh, protections that the constitution requires. Thank you, Peggy. I have a, a question from the chat that I think would be interesting to answer right now, which is, has Cochran been able to earn a living while this is pending? She's employed, yes. Um, uh, th that's because her, uh, she doesn't have a decision against her. Um, unlike um, with Ray Lucia, he had a decision against him. And so he, he, it was very impossible for him to find other employment. So Michelle is in a slightly better position because her proceedings got vacated. So if someone does a job search on her, then um, they are not gonna turn up that she has a securities law violation. But many of these people, certainly George Jarkissi and Ray Lucia, in fact, do have those, uh, uh, those smears, really, if, if, if they have not been treated fairly in the uh, proceedings that last a lifetime and make them unemployable. And then I'm just curious, actually, like, what is the government's response when you raise, you know, either the legal question or the practical question that you've raised about how long this can go on? Well, in my opinion, it's quite illogical. What they say is um, the, the structure of the statute, which, by the way, argues strongly in our favor, if you read the statute correctly, okay, there's nothing in that statute that precludes uh, either implicitly or explicitly federal court jurisdiction for constitutional claims. But they misread the statute and say, well, if you have a final decision from the administrative proceeding, then you have to bring that to the circuit court. That's correct, but there's no final decision here. And so they take that language and assume that it, it applies from the start of the proceeding against the party to the end, and it simply does not. There's no textual support whatsoever for the SEC's argument. Thanks so much, Peggy. We are gonna move on now to Axon Enterprises versus Federal Trade Commission. This is a case brought by a company that makes body cameras for law enforcement, and it ran into antitrust issues when it tried to acquire a competitor. And so it's a very similar question. The question in this case is whether the district court has the power to review constitutional challenges to the FTC structure. Uh, Elise Dorsey is going to discuss the case for us. She is a partner in the Washington office of Kirkland and Ellis, where she works on antitrust and competition issues. She's been the counsel to the Assistant Attorney General for the Antitrust Division at the Department of Justice, and she's worked as an attorney advisor at the Federal Trade Commission. So Elise, uh, please go ahead whenever you're ready. 
Yeah, thank you so much, Amy. Um, I'm really excited to be here um, and be part of this discussion today. I think these two cases in particular seem to follow on a recent trend of challenges to independent agency jurisdiction, their authority and their constitutionality. Um, and which the courts as a whole, I feel, you know, are seeming to be a bit more amenable to in recent years. So I think it's a really interesting time for administrative law and regulated industries. Um, I also have the distinct benefit of getting to follow Peggy, who provided a really excellent overview of some of these issues already. Um, and so I get to free ride off of her excellent work a little bit. Um, one thing I wanted to pick up on in the beginning is this um, timing point that Peggy noted where, you know, there's this real um, distinction between the party's briefs in front of the Supreme Court, I think, where the, you know, the government is really focusing on there is meaningful judicial review. It just is, needs to happen at the appropriate point in time. And to Peggy's point, if that requires a final resolution, well, that could take several years. Um, and I think the Axon case, you know, when we'll get into the facts, is a kind of a good example of why waiting for that final decision might not be reasonable or feasible in the interim. Um, and, you know, also to Peggy's point, right, that it can take several years. So, you know, I was looking through at the beginning of one of the briefs, they note that some of the change in the commission composition since this case was first brought. And I mean, there's been even more recently. So um, Chairman Simons, Commissioner Chopra and Commissioner Phillips were all at the FTC when this was first initiated. All three of them have left. Um, the new chair, Chair Khan is in now and so is Commissioner Bedoya. So it's a very different agency composition. Um, in the meantime, you know, the respondent, the defendant in this case is still facing, trying to muddle through this process. Um, and so kind of given all of that, I wanted to start with a little bit of a description of the facts in this case and some background on the FTC um, to kind of give us some background on Axon's journey to the Supreme Court here. Um, so the FTC is comprised of five commissioners appointed with the advice and consent of Senate. Um, they are supposed to be appointed for seven years staggered terms and they're removable only for inefficiency, neglect of duty or malfeasance, um, which is language that the Supreme Court and the SELA case had previously construed to materially limit presidential control over the agency. Um, the FTC's administrative process is often referred to as its part three litigation um, because of its statutory basis. Um, and the FTC's ALJ is removable only for good cause established and determined by the Merit System Protection Board. Um, so again, the, the ALJ here has at least a couple of layers of insulation from any sort of presidential removal power. And at the FTC, um, they've only had one ALJ for several years now, as long as I can remember. It's just um, been the one ALJ handling all of their internal cases. Um, and another kind of background point that is important in Axon's brief and, you know, makes an appearance and it's, um, it'll be interesting to see, I think, how the, the court addresses this issue or doesn't. Um, but there's this question of clearance as between the FTC and DOJ. So both agencies share jurisdiction to enforce the vast majority, majority of the antitrust laws, including this kind of merger review and how Axon got in front of the FTC as opposed to the DOJ is really a black box. It's pretty unclear from the outside. 
Um, so having worked at both agencies, I can tell you there's, you know, sometimes just often disputes about who gets clearance. Um, they try and look at who has more expertise in a certain industry. Um, but, you know, there are so many and especially in the new economy where, you know, there's a lot of tech stuff and a lot of blurring of lines kind of between different industries that used to be distinct. So I think, you know, fintech generally is a good example. Um, there can be a lot of fights over who gets what. And so Axon, part of their argument is, well, we by happenstance ended up in front of the FTC. If we had ended up in front of the DOJ, we wouldn't be facing any of the issues we're currently facing. We would have gone into federal court much earlier, had meaningful judicial review right away. But because we're in front of the FTC, the FTC has a choice as to whether they're going to pursue a case in their own administrative litigation or in part three. And essentially that's entirely up to the FTC. Um, if the FTC wants to seek a preliminary injunction, they do have to go to federal court for that. Um, but if it's a case like this, where they're not looking for a preliminary injunction in the interim, they can just bring it internally and not have to face a, an administrator or a federal court for several years, potentially, right? They really get to keep that internal for a long time. Um, so turning a little bit to Axon here, you mentioned they made um, body cameras and other equipment for law enforcement. Um, in May, 2018, they acquired one of their competitors, Viview, and about a month later got a letter from the FTC stating that this acquisition raised some antitrust concerns and they were gonna look into it. And so for the next 18 months, Axon cooperated with the FTC's investigation. And you know, I think this is, you know, again, when we're thinking about timing and what meaningful review looks like here, you know, the FTC had 18 months before they even kind of got to the point in the process where they would be going, making the decision as to whether to go to federal court or to go into part three litigation. Um, and during these negotiations, Axon had offered to divest all of Viveu's access assets, um, as well as, it, as it's described in their brief, inject a divestiture buyer with, you know, millions of dollars to get started. So they thought they were creating a meaningful competitor. Um, but in December 2019, and I'm going to read from the Ninth Circuit's decision here, the FTC demanded that Axon turn by view into a, quote, clone of Axon using Axon's intellectual property. And if Axon refused the settlement demand, the FTC threatened to initiate administrative proceeding to obtain the relief. Um, and so at that point, Axon filed its action in the district court challenging the constitutionality of the FTC's administrative proceedings. Um, and so I think that's, you know, pretty significant here because, you know, again, one of the things we're looking at is, you know, what kind of relief could they actually get in federal court if they had to go in front of, you know, not just a potentially more favorable internal ALJ, but to, you know, a part, you know, uh, Article Three judge and, you know, actually present their case and, and defend the, uh, the remedy that they're looking for. I think that's, you know, a really big question here. Um, and so in the Ninth Circuit, Axon was challenging the clearance process that was used to determine whether the FTC or DOJ would review a merger. Um, the fact that the FTC combines all of these powers, investigatory, prosecutorial, adjudicative and appellate functions, and also the dual layer of protection that the FTC ALJs have. 
And they ended up with a split decision with judges Seiler and Lee forming the majority and finding in favor of the FTC and Judge Bumate descending. Um, and reading through this opinion, I really feel like you can see the court struggle with the application and the conclusions they see the law is demanding. Even the majority notes that if they were writing on a clean slate, they would agree with the dissent. Um, they just kind of find that they're not writing on a clean slate, they have to apply the law. And unfortunately it demands um, that they find for the FTC in this matter. Um, another thing, even the majority notes um, and Axon makes a lot of use of in its brief, I think rightfully so, is the fact that the FTC has not lost a part three litigation in at least a quarter century now. As an antitrust practitioner, I think this is an especially striking statistic at this moment in time, um, because it sets out a really stark contrast with the DOJ antitrust division, which has lost um, you know, quite a few high profile cases in federal court recently, including three merger challenges within just a few weeks of one another this fall. Um, you know, and so if you're looking at kind of the disparity between what happens when the agencies go to federal court versus what happens when the FTC takes it internally, I, you know, you see a bit of a disconnect that I don't know that there's a, a good explanation for. Um, additionally, of note here is that the ALJ at times over these 25 years has actually found against the commission and dismissed complaints during the time period only to have the commission come in and overturn his findings and rule for the commission. Um, so when we talk about you know the deck being stacked against defendants and in this internal process, I think that's the perception is that's a, a real concern and a real issue. Um, I think that's, um, I kind of wanted to wrap it up here and, you know, take any questions or further discussion. Fantastic. Thank you. There are questions. Um, I want to make sure that Jennifer also has time to talk uh, because she, although she's theoretically covering one case, she's actually covering four. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to Jennifer Weddle to talk about the four consolidated cases that go by the name of Holland versus Brackeen uh, involving the Indian Child Welfare Act. Uh, and then we will come back and have, have more questions and more discussion. So Jennifer, take it away, please. Thank you, Amy. So nearly 50 years after its enactment by Congress in 1978, the Indian Child Welfare Act is back again at the US Supreme Court in four consolidated cases that are collectively known as Brackeen which is the name of an adoptive couple challenging the statute. Uh, this is the court's first revisiting of ICWA, as it is uh, generally known, since its 2013 five to four holding in a case called Adoptive Couple versus Baby Girl. Um, many of you may remember that that case drew a lot of national and social media attention, ripping away an Indian child from her Indian father after she had been with him for years finding that ICWA's preference for the Indian parent who had relinquished his parental rights while serving in the military later changed his mind and later was successful in petitioning uh, South Carolina court and at the South Carolina Supreme Court in getting custody of his daughter. The U.S. Supreme Court, in an opinion by Justice Alito in 2013, threw all that out 
and said that because the Indian father had not been the custodial parent at the time of the relinquishment of his parental rights, it was preference for the Indian biological parent did not apply, uh, and therefore the child was adopted by a non-Indian couple. Um, this has been a, a Bensock audio production by Justice Thomas in the case sharply questioned Congress's authority to enact ICWA in the first instance. Um, almost immediately thereafter, repeated challenges to ICWA sprang up, including those four consolidated cases uh, that will take up the full argument time before the court on November 9th. Um, but before turning to discussion of those cases, I think some additional context about ICWA might be helpful. Um, ICWA was passed, as I say, in 1978, at a time when one third of Indian children were being removed from their Indian homes. 90% of those children were placed with non-Indian entities, either families or institutions. Those really shocking numbers about child theft flowed from ignorance and contempt directed at Indian families by state courts and child welfare personnel, and that also arose as a direct result of a now disavowed federal assimilationist policy that sought to subdue Indian tribes by removing Indian children from their families, forbidding those children access to their culture and tribal communities, and forcing them to assimilate to majority culture in really horrific ways. A lot of those atrocities are now being uh, exposed um, both in um, litigation matters and government investigations. Um, but in all respects, the goal of those policies was to destabilize uh, tribal communities um, really at the root uh, in hopes of the federal government seeking to avoid having to continue to deal uh, with Indian tribes. All of that's been long disavowed, but in the mid 1970s, um, those policies uh, and the results were still in full force with the mass removal of Indian children from Indian homes. This included both uh, private adoptions to non-Indian households and the mass internment of Indian children at boarding schools over the strenuous objections of their families and their tribal governments. So in 1978, Congress moved to remedy that tribal instability created by the mass removal of Indian children. Uh, and they enacted ICWA, fulfilling uh, what they described in the legislative history uh, as their long neglected treaty and trust obligations to protect Indian children and to preserve the government to government relationship between tribes and the United States. Um, what they enacted in ICWA was a procedural statute. It does not dictate outcomes. And since 1978, routinely, ICWA results in non-Indian parents adopting Indian children. What ICWA does do is it guarantees tribal governments certain rights that are purely uh, procedural and jurisdictional in nature. This includes exclusive tribal court jurisdiction over reservation domiciliaries, uh, presumptive tribal court jurisdiction over non-reservation domiciliaries, uh, rights to intervene in state court proceedings, notice requirements uh, that must be provided to tribal governments when an Indian child is involved, um, rights for that tribal government to petition for state court redress, and rights to obtain records, you know, among some other things. So what is all the fuss about? Uh, shortly after the court's 
2013 decision in adoptive couple versus baby girl, a Texas couple, the Brakeens, uh, wishing to adopt an Indian child, the younger sibling of another Indian child they had already adopted, uh, joined with the state of Texas and filed a suit in the Northern District of Texas against the United States and multiple federal agencies and officers claiming ICWA is unconstitutional. Um, they were joined by additional plaintiff adoptive parent, potential adoptive parents from Nevada and Minnesota, as well as by the states of Louisiana and Indiana. The Cherokee Nation, the Oneida Nation, the Quinal Indian Nation, and the Morongo Band of Mission Indians intervened as defendants, and later the Navajo Nation intervened at the appellate stage. Um, so tons and tons of briefing by lots of interested government actors uh, and the three uh, potential adoptive couples. Uh, Judge Reed O'Connor uh, held at the district court level that much of ICWA was unconstitutional, uh, but ultimately the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit threw most of that decision out uh, in an en banc ruling in 2021. Um, that en banc ruling includes 325 pages of opinions um, by Judges Dennis and Duncan, um, which are joined in myriad subparts by the various judges who sat on the en banc court. Uh, and I say this in short and with respect, uh, the Fifth Circuit decision is a hot mess. Uh, and the Supreme Court may have taken up these four cases simply to admonish the Fifth Circuit not to do this to them again, because trying to make heads or tails out of what's in the 325 pages of plurality opinion uh, is quite a chore. Um, the Court of Appeals affirmed the district court on some of the holdings uh, that specific sections of ICWA violated the Fifth Amendment's equal protection guarantee and the Tenth Amendment's anti-commandeering principle. Um, specifically, the Fifth Circuit, in an equally divided court, affirmed the district court's holding that ICWA's preference for placing Indian children with other Indian families, um, the, the third ranking choice in ICWA, uh, ICWA's order of preference, and the foster care preference for licensed Indian foster homes violated equal protection. The Court of Appeals also concluded that the Tenth Amendment's anti-commandeering principle was violated because ICWA's active efforts and qualified expert witness provisions and record keeping requirements um, uh, violate the anti-commandeering principle. Um, finally, uh, the Fifth Circuit uh, held that certain provisions of, of the ICWA final rule uh, violated the APA. Um, the United States, the tribes, Texas, and the non-Indian adoptive parents all filed petitions for certiorari and the court granted all four petitions. Uh, in the cases, Texas and the non-Indian prospective adoptive parents argue that Congress acted beyond its Indian Commerce Clause power in enacting ICWA uh, and that ICWA creates a race-based child custody system in violation of the Equal Protection Clause and that ICWA violates the anti-commandeering doctrine. Um, Texas also argues that ICWA's implementing regulations violate the non-delegation doctrine by allowing individual tribes to alter placement preferences enacted by Congress. Um, the United States and the tribes and 23 amici states argue that Congress has the authority to enact ICWA, that ICWA does not violate the anti-commandeering doctrine, that ICWA does not violate the equal protection doctrine, and that Texas's non-delegation challenge should be rejected. Um, there are dozens of amicus briefs on both sides, 
including a brief filed on behalf of 497 Indian tribes. That's nearly all of them. Um, and then 62 tribal and Indian organizations, um, as well as, like I say, 23 states intervening on behalf of the United, or, or filing amicus briefs on behalf of the United States as well. Um, the Burkines, Texas, and their amici, including just two states, Ohio and Oklahoma, uh, argued that ICWA created a government-imposed and government-funded discriminatory shorting, sorting regime for children uh, based on race and ancestry. Um, but the United States, nearly all the tribes, 23 states and many more amici organizations, all argue that ICWA is not predicated on a racial classification at all, but instead on a child's eligibility for citizenship in a federally recognized tribe, as the term Indian has been routinely understood to be a political classification, uh, both by Congress and the court. Um, so what does all this mean? <laughs> um, there's a lot to read here. If you read only one brief in these four cases, I would suggest the brief of the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, which connects the dots on the court's longtime understanding of the term Indian, as a political classification and the link of that understanding to the court's Indian country law enforcement and criminal jurisdiction jurisprudence. Um, as Justice Gorsuch framed the majority's ruling in last term's Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta decision, Texas's argument that Indian is a racial classification is both ahistorical and a, a mistaken statement of Indian law. Um, the court's 1974 decision in Morton versus Moncari, which I know is also cited uh, in the Harvard cases, um, is the seminal case on this. And there the court upheld the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934's Indian preference in federal hiring, finding that Indian was a political classification and not a racial one, and that the preference for Indian hiring was rationally related to the United States conduct of its government to government relationship with Indian tribes, providing services through the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Um, that's another interesting note on this case. Um, there's a raging point-counterpoint debate happening between legal historians Robert Nadelson and Greg Oblosky, both uh, frequent Federalist Society contributors. Um, a full vetting of that war is beyond the scope of this talk, but this is debate among the historians is really significant because Justice Thomas relied on Professor Nadelson's work in his 2013 concurring opinion in adoptive couple versus baby girl. And that work has subsequently really been honed by Professor Oblowski, um, which Professor Nadelson does not appreciate. Uh, I would also commend to you Professor Oblowski's amicus brief here in support of the United States. Um, it's truly a masterwork detailing the changes made to Indian policy in the Constitution, stepping away from the disastrous Indian policy experiments that had been in the Articles of Confederation. Um, there's about 16 different issues in these cases, including standing and redressability issues, given that two of the three couples have adopted the Indian children they sought to adopt, uh, and the third Indian child has been adopted by her biological grandmother. Um, as to the anti-commandeering issues, whatever commandeering there is um, seems to be tolerable to states with 23 offering very full-throated support for ICWA and only three opposing it. Um, ICWA has been generally easily implemented by states in the almost 50 years of its existence. But here we also have the reality that three of nine justices are adoptive parents themselves or have an adoptive parent sibling. Um, there's a lot of empathy and experience with this subject matter on the court. 
Um, and that's overlaid with the context that the court continues to struggle with the role of tribes in our modern federalism. Uh, and we'll have to see whether they follow history and precedent or chart a new course, uh, or if they just express their displeasure with 325 pages from the Fifth Circuit. Thank you, Jennifer. You are all, all four of you, such heroes for summarizing such complicated cases, each of them so concisely. Um, I was in such a hurry to hear from Jennifer that I forgot to introduce her properly. She is a shareholder in the Denver office of Greenberg Traurig. She's the co-chair of the firm's American Indian law practice and has been involved in many of the cases involving tribal law at the Supreme Court. There are several other cases before the court in the November setting, which somewhat counterintuitively starts on October 31st. Uh, I am going to discuss each of them very briefly, and that will give you time, if you are so inclined, to submit a question in the Q&A section. And many thanks to those of you who have already submitted a question, and we will have time to get to those in just a moment. Um, one of the cases the Supreme Court is going to hear is a case called Jones versus Hendricks, which is whether or not the district court has the power to review a claim that a federal prisoner's sentence is invalid because of a Supreme Court decision that came after his petition for post-conviction relief. This is a case in which the federal government is not defending the lower court's reasoning, although it is in, uh, defending the judgment. And so the Supreme Court has appointed an amicus, Morgan Ratner, who until very recently was a, an assistant to the U.S. Solicitor General to defend the Eighth Circuit's reasoning in this case. Cruz versus Arizona is a case in which the just, justices are considering whether or not an Arizona Supreme Court ruling that a state rule of criminal procedure bars a death row inmate from obtaining uh, relief is an adequate and independent state law ground for the judgment against him so that the Supreme Court wouldn't be able to review it. An uh, interesting case called Bittner versus United States uh, involves the Bank Secrecy Act, which requires taxpayers to report any foreign bank accounts that they might have using a special form. A businessman in this case who has dual U.S. Romanian citizenship and had several overseas accounts, didn't realize he was supposed to complete the form. He had five years when he should have done it, but he did not. And so the question in the case is whether or not the fine that he has to pay is $10,000 per report so that he'd owe $50,000 or $10,000 each time he failed to report an account, which means that his fine would be $2.7 million. Supreme Court has a case involving personal jurisdiction called Mallory versus Norfolk, Norfolk Southern Railway. It's a challenge to the constitutionality of a Pennsylvania law that requires a corporation to consent to personal jurisdiction as a condition of doing business in the state. It's a case brought by a former railroad employee who developed cancer and is trying to hold the company responsible. The question is whether or not he can sue the company in Pennsylvania. And then last, but certainly not least, a case called Health and Hospital Corporation of Marion County versus Tlefsky. This is a case about whether or not federal laws that are enacted using Congress's spending clause power allow a plaintiff to file a federal civil rights claim for their violations. 
Um, so let me go ahead and take a look. There were already several questions in the chat. Um, let me see if we have more. This is a question that could go, I think, to both Peggy and to Elise. This is a question about whether or not the independence of the ALJ is salvageable on the unitary executive theory. And if it's not, what about other appellate administrative bodies such as the IRS's appeals division? Well, I'll take a shot at it. Great, thank you. Okay. Um, I think the... Uh, the supposed independence uh, of the ALJs, which is not an issue in either Elise's case or mine. This is just, just a jurisdictional question. So I'm traveling a bit far afield, but on the removal protections, I think the idea that if you, if you pile them on, there's some, the ALJs are gonna somehow be less inclined to rule as their employer would want them to do is really a fiction. Uh, the, the, institutional built-in tendency to rule in favor of your boss is gonna be there whether you've got one layer of removal protections or five. And um, Elise what, what very helpfully brought up the FTC 100% wind rate. For the SEC, it's 90% as, com as compared to somewhere between 60 and 70% in federal courts. And I think that shows rather dramatically that there is an institutional bias that means that people uh, just don't have a fair shake before the administrative law judges. Our goal is to, um, is to do away with administrative law judging altogether and send people back to federal courts where they have the full range of protections that the constitution guarantees to them. Thanks so much, Peggy. Jennifer, I had a question about Justice Gorsuch, who you mentioned briefly, wrote the decision for the majority in McGirt versus Oklahoma in 2020, and then had a very strong dissent in Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta this past year. Uh, where, do, you know, you're, you're in Colorado. So is it his Colorado background that is the source of his sort of strong interest in Indian law issues, like do you know anything? Do you have any anything any light to shed for us? Yeah, uh, I think Justice Gorsuch has always been very interested and informed about Indian law issues. Coming from the Tenth Circuit, uh, he certainly dealt with a lot of those issues while on the circuit. Um, he was widely endorsed by tribes and tribal organizations when he was nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court because of that familiarity and respect for tribal sovereignty. Um, you know, when he was on the 10th circuit, he went to every rubber chicken dinner on tribal rights issues in Colorado and um, made it his mission to be very informed. Uh, and I think, um, I, I, always, I always do a book plug for him, but his book, A Republic, If You Can Keep It, addresses some of the, you know, those early notions of federalism and tribes role uh, in that federalism. And I think he just has a lot of respect for that. Um, like I say, is a very informed student of history uh, and consequently has very strong uh, opinions, which he expressed in uh, Castro Huerta. Thank you. I had muted it because my dog was barking downstairs, but 
fortunately he has stopped. Um, I have quite, we have a question from the chat for Allison, which points out that because Harvard is a private entity, the claims against it are for violation of Title VI, which prohibit discrimination by institutions that receive federal funding, that only the UNC case directly involves claims for violations of the 14th Amendment. Um, having said that, the claims against Harvard under Title VI present constitutional issues because of the previous decisions reading Title VI to impose the same constraints on funding recipients that the 14th Amendment imposes on states. And so the question is, which would be the heavier lift for the justices to resolve the case by reversing Grutter's 14th Amendment precedent or to resolve the case by reversing those other cases equating Title VI's requirements to those of the 14th Amendment? So that's a good question. Um, the questioner is correct that what that the University of North Carolina case is brought under the Constitution and that the Harvard case is brought under Title VI, and that while the court read the, read the protection clause and Title VI as prohibiting exactly the same types of discrimination in the 1976 Lucky case, there are some experts who question whether that was appropriate. Um, there is some originalist scholarship that pushes back on the idea that the protection clause doesn't allow so-called remedial discrimination. There's at least one originalist brief that's been submitted to the court that makes that argument. I personally don't find its logic fully convincing. Uh, first of all, it doesn't really take on state-based discrimination the or institution uh, or discrimination that would be occurring by state universities or equivalent state governments. The cases where the framers of the 14th Amendment allowed race discrimination that they cite seem to be focused on the federal government, which is a different animal for 14th Amendment analysis purposes. They also seem to look mostly at legislation, as I understand it, that's targeted at freedmen. And while that class is highly correlated with race, it's not exactly the same thing as race-based relief itself. For example, uh, the children of free, free Blacks who were living in the North at the time and their children presumably not have been eligible for relief aimed at freedmen despite their racial status. So I, it's possible that the court could choose, to, could choose to take that route as interpreting Title VI as prohibiting this type of discrimination, whereas allowing some flexibility under the protection clause I'm not convinced that it's necessary to draw that distinction or to question those precedents, uh, including Baki, that have gotten the court there. Thanks so much. Our next question is also for Allison, and it touches on something you have already mentioned, but talking about the influence of race-based decision-making in many institutions besides colleges, is there any hope or expectation that the court might use language in its Harvard decision, which acknowledges, as, as the Chief Justice said in the parents involved case, that the way to stop dis racial discrimination is to stop using race to discriminate. So I agree that as a legal and policy matter, the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. It's hard to be clairvoyant about what the justices would do, but if they want to take that opportunity to include such language in the opinion, I think it would be valuable. As I alluded to earlier, 
race-based decision-making has expanded into many areas of law and policy um, besides higher education. And in many of those areas, Grutter is cited favorably as a precedent for it, or in other cases, even if Grutter is not being officially cited, its language of diversity is cited as justification more informally. So I do hope the justices do that, although obviously there's this veil of secrecy regarding what they can or will do. Terrific, thanks so much. Um, my next question is for Elise. Um, what do you make of the Supreme Court's decision not to take up one of the questions that, that the justices have been asked to take up in the Axon Enterprise involving the structure of the FTC itself? Um, yeah, that's a good question. You know, as I alluded to kind of at the beginning of the conversation, it's a time when a lot of different aspects of independent agencies are kind of under fire. I think, you know, in this sitting, it really made a lot of sense with the Cochrane case for them to take up the issue that they did um, and maybe start there and see how it goes. I guess I'm trying to stay optimistic as to, you know, their willingness to consider that a little later on down the road after they've maybe had a chance to work through some of these earlier decisions and see how that fits in. Because I think questions like this as to, you know, if you're a party, when can you actually go to federal court and get relief there might play into how the court sees the constitutionality of the agency more broadly. Because, you know, I think the, the checks and balances, it kind of matters how how the things all fit together and work together as a whole. Terrific. And then my next question would be for either Elise or Peggy. And it's something you you touched on, but I, maybe you could elaborate a little. Like, what are the ripple effects beyond, of potential ripple effects of a decision uh, either for or against the federal government in these cases um, beyond beyond these two agencies? I'm happy to jump in. I think, I think that it will have some profound effect, just as uh, Lucia's decision affected Cochrane and um, Axon's uh, ability to raise these constitutional questions. I think uh, that it is a situation where the constitutional protections build upon one another. And perhaps the best case uh, showing that is Jarcusy, which came down as a blockbuster Fifth Circuit, Circuit decision, which also recognized uh, that the administrative process denied respondents their jury trial rights. Now, I wanna be clear too, that this is not all ALJ judging that would be subject to those um, issues. For example, the vast majority of ALJs are social security and veterans benefits uh, ALJs. It's actually a very small number who adjudicate uh, cases brought against people by the government. When you have a social security uh, a case, that's somebody seeking a benefit from the government. The same holds true for veterans cases. So you don't have a right to a jury trial on those sorts of claims. You don't have the same uh, need for constitutional protections because the government is not bringing a case against the social security uh, applicants or the veterans. They are simply seeking a government benefit and all of the um, protections are, 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 are very different than when the government is seeking as in say Ray Lucia or Michelle Cochran's case to find them, you know, potentially up to hundreds of thousands of dollars 
to you know, close down their business in the case of Axon to halt a merger and force them to hand over their intellectual property to someone else or resue. I mean, that was a shocking demand, I think, in, in Axon. Uh, and, and you'd never see a district court entertain such a thing. So I think that the, um, the important thing to remember, you're talking about a couple hundred judges um, that decide these cases. And I think those, that caseload can readily be handled by district court judges or appointing a, a, you know, a couple hundred more. And uh, I do think that uh, the ultimate goal is to get agency uh, enforcement out of their in-house courts, which rule for them 100% of the time and back into federal courts where people have their constitutional protections. Yeah, and just um, to add on to Peggy's point a little bit, um, some of the ripple effects that I'm at least hoping for also just kind of relate to the agencies themselves and how they're thinking about bringing these cases against some of the, the FCC in particular's decisions that I'm familiar with recently seem to be putting them in a place where they're just running headfirst into these constitutional questions, right? They're kind of assuming they have all sorts of authority and can do all sorts of things. Again, to Peggy's point, the, the demand in Axon was pretty unreasonable. And I cannot think of another example where they ever received any sort of uh, relief like that, um, even in their own administrative proceedings. So I think hopefully some of like these cases and the decisions will will get them in the interim, maybe while we're waiting um, to get all of the cases into federal court, hopefully get them to make better decisions in the in the short term. And Amy, I would just jump in here to say I, I echo that. And as somebody who doesn't practice in that area of law, but does do a lot of administrative law, I think we're going to see increasing cases building off cases like the, the Cochrane case and the Lucia case, where just nationally and certainly on the court, there's a decreasing wedge of tolerance for living in an administrative state. And there, there's this fundamental question of where did you get this power over me? And what, you know, was that constitutional to begin with? And um, we saw that just last week with the Fifth Circuit uh, finding the CFPBs, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's funding structure unconstitutional. Um, cases and, and statutes that have been before the court many times that are getting a much closer review, I think in part because you see these really egregious cases of mission creep like Peggy was talking about, where it's, there's no way you'd ever get away with that in federal court. And yet you have federal officers doing it to ordinary people every day. And at some level, that's just offensive. And I think there's a major course correction happening, not only at the court, but across the circuits on that. All right, well, if or when these cases bubble back up to the Supreme Court, we know uh, who the experts are to go to. So uh, please join me in thanking our wonderful, wonderful panel, Allison Soman, Peggy Little, Elise Dorsey, and Jennifer Weddle. You all were, were fantastic. And I'm going to turn it back over now to Jack Capizzi. Well, thank you, Amy. Uh, we greatly appreciate it. Um, and I guess I'll take this time to just say thank you for helping us moderate this event. And then also thank you to um, all of our panel for sharing their truly valuable time and expertise today. Um, and then uh, to thank our audience as well for joining us. As always, we welcome listener feedback by email at info at fedsoc.org. Um, and please keep an eye on the website and your emails for announcements about upcoming webinars. 
there is certain to be plenty uh, for this upcoming docket. So thank you all for your time. With that, we are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.